Well, if you would please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Micah chapter 2. If you happen to be using a pew Bible, you'll find Micah 2 on page 776. For those of you who might be visiting, or for those of you who maybe were out last week, today is the second sermon in a seven-part summer series on the book of Micah. And again, for those who were not with us last week, or for those of you who might need a refresher, I want to give you a brief explanation of where we find ourselves this morning. Instead of just parachuting into Micah 2, I want you to know a little bit of background behind these words. The Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who preserved Noah, the one who made the promise to Abraham to bless and multiply his family, the one who heard the cries of his enslaved people in Egypt and brought them out under the yoke of Pharaoh, the one who then sustained them in the wilderness and gave them a land to be their home supplied with abundant resources. That God has announced judgment On this very same people. He has announced that judgment is coming. He's announced that he will take their capital cities. And will remove everything from them. Every building. Every monument. Every paver in the street. So that afterwards they will resemble farmland. But it's not just those big, important capital cities. God will also judge those country villages, those quiet, small towns. Trouble is coming for them as well. And we saw this in the latter half of Micah chapter 1. He goes through a list of these towns. And he says that, hey, the enemy army will come through on its way to Jerusalem. And as it comes through, it will leave your little community in ruins. This is the message that Micah brings on behalf of his God. This is the message he brings to the people of God. And the question is why? Why is he saying this? Why is he declaring judgment and destruction upon this people? And the answer, at its root, is idolatry. It's spiritual infidelity, spiritual Adultery, going after other gods, being unfaithful to the one true God who rescued them and bound himself to them and provided for and protected them. They have abandoned him and done what is evil, worshiping false gods and demons. And this theological problem very quickly turns into a societal problem. You know, I mentioned Andrew Breitbart last week and his famous quote that politics is downstream from culture. If you want to influence politics, you have to influence culture. And I made the argument last week, and I think it's the right argument and the biblical argument, that at the very top of the stream, above politics, above culture, above everything, is what you worship. Above everything is 
your theology, what you believe about God and what you believe God demands of you. And so nationally, whatever a nation worships will influence its culture and politics and society and families and everything. And isn't that an indictment on us? And then individually, whatever you worship, be it self or money or status or the approval of man or pleasure or comfort, whatever it is, that is going to trickle down and affect everything else in life. And this is what has happened in the book of Micah. There is a spiritual sickness. There is a worship problem. Uh, One of you told me you like my term theological rot. There's rot, and it's going to flow down and cause societal and moral rot everywhere. And in response to this, Micah brings a word of judgment, a word of warning to, to turn and to act in a way that is commensurate with belonging to the household of faith. Act in accordance with who you are. Act in accordance with the grace you've been shown. There are words of indictment and judgment. But there's also words of blessing as well that we'll get to. You know, as we work through Micah, and Micah is not the only prophet that does this. All the prophets do this. In Micah, you will see a threefold structure where sin is exposed and then judgment is declared and then follow, uh, what follows is restoration and blessing. And we're going to see all three of those today. But before we do, there's one final thing to say before I read our text. One final plea on my part. Do not, please, read this text or hear me read it and then immediately sit back and relax and conclude that it does not apply to you. You might not be amassing real estate through sinful means. You might not consider yourself wealthy. If I asked you, there might be others that you would point the finger at and say, they're the oppressors. Please slow down. Because the principles in this text can apply to every one of us. I would remind you the Apostle Paul said that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Paul doesn't say, hey, some portions of Scripture, scripture like Micah 2, are only profitable and for reproof and correction for the, the wealthy who are acquiring lots and lots of land, not for the middle class or the poor. Paul does not say that, which means that there's something here for all of us. And so as we work through this text, it's my prayer that you would look inward and ask, how is the word of God cutting my heart? How is the word of God grieving my conscience? What What are the areas of my life that resemble the unbelieving world way more than they resemble the kingdom of heaven? Please do not for a moment say, this text isn't about me. 
If you consider yourself as belonging to the people of God, then please open your ears and pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal your sin to you and make you more like Christ. And don't do it just for me. Do it for the sake of your own soul and do it for the honor of your Lord. With that plea out of the way, let's, let's read, let's pray and then read this text. Father God, we declare that your word is truth. Your word is living. It is active. And Father, we pray that it would work in our hearts this morning. Would your spirit work through this word in the hearts of your people for their good and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Micah chapter 2, if you'll follow along with me, page 776. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they will take up a taunt song against you, and moan bitterly, and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. Or should uh, one should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses and their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place of rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher of this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes out before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. The grass withers and the flowers fade, 
But the word of our God stands forever. Well, chapter 2 opens with the exposure of the sin of the people. We read the words, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of the hand. What, what Micah is delivering, what's being said is, is a woe. It's, it's a lament. Be grieved, you people, who use your imagination and your creative ability to conceive new ways of taking advantage of those less powerful than yourself. The image here is of someone laying on their bed at night and they are unable to sleep because they are scheming up evil things. And then simply because they can, not because they should, but simply because they have the power to do so, they carry out this evil plan unashamedly in the light of day. We're told what this plan is in verse 2. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. I was reminded of a story that I think will illustrate this perfectly. It's a story I imagine many of you are familiar with. It's the account of Naboth's vineyard in 1 Kings 21, and I'll summarize it for you. There was a man named Naboth who owned a vineyard right beside the palace of King Ahab in Samaria. And King Ahab saw this vineyard and, and he, he wanted it. And so he goes to Naboth and says, give me your vineyard. I would like to have a vegetable garden right next to my palace. But don't worry, I'll compensate you well. I'll, I'll give you a better vineyard elsewhere or if you would just like to get out of the vineyard business. I'll give you a good sum of money for this property. You remember what Naboth said? He didn't take the offer. He said, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Naboth remembered the word and command of God... uh, I'm sure you remember it, found in Leviticus 25. The reminder to the people that the land belonged to God and that God entrusted it to them. They were assigned their allotted portion in the land of promise. And so they were not to permanently transfer that land to someone else. That's what Naboth is referring to. Well, Ahab doesn't take this well. He goes back to his palace and he throws a tantrum. He lays on his bed. He faces the wall. He won't eat. He's acting like a three-year-old. And then who comes in? His wife, Jezebel. And she says, what's wrong, honey? And he tells her, I wanted Naboth's vineyard for my vegetable garden." It's right there. It'd be perfect. But he said, no, he wouldn't give it to me. And how does Jezebel respond? Aren't you the king of Israel? Aren't you powerful? Aren't you important? 
Get up. Be glad. Go eat something. I'll get your vegetable garden for you. If you remember the story, you'll remember that Jezebel begins to devise wickedness. She begins to scheme. She finds two lowlifes who falsely accuse Naboth of cursing God and king. He's falsely accused and convicted and then taken out of the city and stoned to death. And once Jezebel gets the news of this death, she goes to her husband and said, He's dead. Go and get your vineyard. That is what is happening on a much wider scale in Micah's day. There are Ahabs everywhere. Newly rich people who wanted more and more, never content, never satisfied with their lot. And they bought out small family plots of land and evicted the original owners. And if the owners wouldn't sell, then just like Jezebel, they would often use violence to get what they wanted. And the end result was that you had a lot of small family farms which were turned into a few large estates. And the original owners, the the little guy, was left homeless and destitute. His, His plot of land that had been assigned to his family by God was taken away. The the plot of land that identified him as one of God's people and as a recipient of the covenant promises, he was stripped away. And I told you last week that Isaiah and Micah overlap, and Isaiah speaks of this in Isaiah 5. He says, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. But what would the buyer probably say? Hey, it's not personal. It's just business. But what's the Lord's response? He follows this exposure of sin with words of judgment. In verse 3, he says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family, I am devising disaster. God is saying, through Micah, I will do to you what you have done to them. I mean, did you notice the same word is used in verse 1 and in verse 3? In verse 1, they are the the ones devising wickedness against the poor. And God responds in verse 3, I will devise disaster against you. There's a warning here. You remember the picture that we saw in chapter 1. This is the Lord who melts the mountains like candles when he descends from his heavenly temple. Do you really want him to use his imagination and creative ability to devise disaster for you? This is a siren call to wake up. It is a warning to not be presumptive, to not assume you're safe and secure from the judgment of God because of where you were born or what family you were born into 
or because you attend worship occasionally and give occasionally, or because you've, you've met with the elders and have verbally professed faith. If you are living like an enemy of God and like an enemy of the people of God, be warned, the Lord will devise disaster against you. Again, I mentioned this earlier, the Apostle Paul warning the Galatians in Galatians 6, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Again, you might not be buying up a ton of real estate and dispossessing the poor. But we might sober up real quickly if we heard God say to us, as you do to others, so I will do to you. What if God treated you the same way you treated your clients or your customers or your patients? Now, a lot of times for the sake of self-preservation, we probably treat them pretty, pretty well. But what if God treated you the same way you treat your wife? What if God treated you the same way you treat your children? What if God treated you the same way you treat your parents? I hope it really makes us think. But what's the response of the people? Well, we see in the second half of verse 4, they're crying and moaning bitterly. They're saying, it's not fair. God, you're so unjust. Why are you doing this to me? Why have you stripped my possessions and given them to those apostates who have left you behind? I mean, this isn't the pot calling the kettle black. They're whining to God. And then they start whining to Micah. Micah, don't preach such things. We see this in verse 6. Don't preach to us that judgment. We don't want to hear that. Disgrace won't overtake us. Don't you know, Michael? Micah, we are... God's chosen people. No matter what, God will remain with us. And Micah responds, says, Ah, you want to talk about preaching. Here's the kind of preaching you enjoy. Verse 11, you prefer wind and lies. You prefer someone who says, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. That's your preacher. You want someone who will come and endorse and celebrate your licentious, worldly lifestyle. You want someone who will justify your sin and make you feel comfortable in your sin. One who will say, eat, drink, and be merry. All is at peace. You want someone who never pricks your conscience. Someone who never says, brother, You have gone too far. Brother, I have noticed something in your life that is troubling. I am worried about you. I am worried you've fallen into sin. But that's not the kind of preaching they wanted to hear. And it's not that God is ungracious to them. We see in verse 7, it does not bring the Lord joy to be angry with his people. 
does not bring him joy to utter threats against them because of their sin. His words are good to those who live in an upright manner. But that's not the way his people have chosen to live. Verse 8, but lately my people have risen up as an enemy. They'll rob someone on the road. They will oppress women and children. And then finally, judgment is declared in verse 10. Arise and go, for this is no place of rest. That's what he tells them. You've been gathering and gathering and gathering and gathering. And now he says, get up, go away. This is not your resting place. This land had been given to them as a place of rest. A place where they could enjoy fellowship with God. But now it has been defiled by their sin. And so they're not allowed to stay. You know, we sing of this place of rest and fellowship with God. We we sing it in many of our hymns. Uh, crossing the Jordan River is a a metaphor for dying in the Lord and being brought into His presence, into a heavenly Canaan where we enter eternal rest and enjoy the fellowship of our Lord forever. I I didn't pick out this hymn today when I chose hymns a while back. I, I didn't think of this one, but I was reminded of Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. And that stanza... When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fear subside. Death of death and hell's destruction land me safe on Canaan's side. I mean, those are glorious promises. But they're only true for the people of God. They're only true for those who have an inheritance. They're only true for those who have turned from their sin to Christ. They're true for the ones who can say with David in Psalm 16, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Behold, I have a Beautiful inheritance. But not everyone can say the Lord is my portion. Many are discontent with what they've been given. They're fueled by greed and pride and covetousness. And they treat people under them poorly. And in the end, they will lose everything they've been coveting. The individuals who are oppressing the poor and amassing wealth into bigger and bigger estates will lose the very thing they've schemed to achieve. They'll be cast out of the land because of their sin, and it will be given to others. You know, losing the land due to sin isn't only limited to this context. It's not only limited to the late 7th century in the ancient Near East in Israel. I mean, Scripture speaks of a heavenly city, a new Jerusalem. And all those who have been transformed by the redeeming power of the Lord Jesus Christ will inhabit it, and they will be co-heirs with Him. 
but we're also warned. We're told of that city, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. There's a warning. Those who remain in their sin, those who remain apart from Christ, they will hear similar words to those spoken in verse 10. Arise and go, for this is no place of rest. And everything they schemed for will be lost. And I'm reminded of this very important question that the Lord Jesus asks. He says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And the answer is nothing. You remember that structure. The exposure of sin, the judgment for sin, and then lastly, the restoration and blessing. And it's slightly more clear this week in chapter 2 than it was in chapter 1. In chapter 12, we're given the image of a shepherd gathering his flock and protecting them. The name Jacob used here is is referring to all those who truly belong to the Lord and love the Lord. This is not merely the physical descendants of Abraham, but the spiritual descendants. The ones who, like Abraham, their father, looked to the Lord and believed, and it was counted to them as righteousness. That's who the Lord will gather. But we're told that they will be a remnant which means that they will experience trouble. They will experience loss. But ultimately, they will be safely brought through and preserved. That's the image of the shepherd. But then in verse 13, we're given the image of what the commentary is called the breaker. And I love this. The breaker is one who goes ahead and opens the path so that those behind can follow. You know, it made me think of an offensive lineman in football. These enormous men charge ahead, knocking linebackers and safeties out of the way so that the path could be open for the running back to sprint down the field. And this is what God promises to do for his people. This word of blessing and promise certainly had meaning in Micah's day to his hearers. Again, it's so helpful to understand biblical history and and the timeline when you're looking at these prophets. Because do you remember what the Assyrians are going to do? The Assyrians are going to first wipe out the northern kingdom in Samaria and they'll be hauled off into captivity and we never hear from them ever again. And then the Assyrians are going to make their way down to Jerusalem. And they will surround the city. And they will threaten the people of God. But what happens? God gathers his people. His remnant. He gathers them behind the walls of the city. Just like a shepherd gathers sheep into a pen to protect them from the wolves. And then what happens? King Hezekiah prays and pleads for the Lord to save them. 
Save them, Lord, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. And what happens? The breaker comes out. Like that offensive lineman, the breaker comes out and opens a path. We're told in 2 Kings 19 that the angel of the Lord went out of the city and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, there are bodies everywhere. And the king of Assyria goes home and is subsequently assassinated by one of his own sons. And isn't it comforting that this image of the breaker is not of a hero who comes far off from the outside in, but one who fights from the inside out. It's an image of one who is in the city with them and goes out alone to face the enemies and to open a way for his people. There was meaning for the people in Micah's day, but isn't all of this a foreshadowing of the blessing and promise that comes through the work of the Lord Jesus? Doesn't he name himself as the good shepherd? And he promises, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. But listen, saints, the Lord Jesus isn't only the divine shepherd who gathers and protects his people. He's also the breaker. He has identified with us. He has shared our lot. He, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He partook of flesh and blood. He was made like us in every way except without sin. Why? So that he could go out and do the same thing that he did to the Assyrians. He could go out and do that to our enemies. Satan, sin, and death. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ partook of flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Through his death on the cross... Our breaker has gone ahead all alone and opened the way for us so that we might be safely delivered. Death of death and hell's destruction land us safe on Canaan's side. We have a foreshadowing here of the captain of our salvation, of the trailblazer that we follow. And the question to end with is, Are you following him? Does your life identify you as one of his people or one of his enemies? Who or what is the object of your worship?
Is he your portion? Is he your cup? Can you say, like David, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. Yet again, we're left with the Lord setting before all of us life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Let's pray. Father, we need all of these. We need you to expose our sin. We need to understand the due punishment due our sin. And we need the blessing and promise that is found in the captain of our salvation, Jesus Christ. Father, I, I pray that you would continue to expose within us our sin, just like Micah exposes the sin of the people here. I I pray that we would take our sin seriously and understand just how dangerous it is. Just how offensive it is to you as as a holy God and just how dangerous it is to our soul. Father, would we flee to our breaker. May a recognition of our own sin cause us to flee to the good shepherd. And Father, may our lives bear witness that we have made such a flight. Would you increase and multiply the graces within our lives So that those outside might look in and say, He is one of the good shepherd's sheep. She is one of his lambs. Father, we ask that you do this. We thank you for your word. Continue the work you've begun. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.